The views and opinions expressed on this show are purely the views and opinions of the person who made them and do not necessarily reflect or agree with those of the show's commercial sponsors, its radio station affiliates, or internet broadcast platforms. As the restriction on our God-given right to free speech manifests itself throughout the world, we are inspired by Jesus Christ's immortal words, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And we reserve the rights to all our words. Thank you, and now enjoy the show. Learn who rules over you, simply find out who you are not allowed to criticise. You are listening to ACH, I'm Andy, your host. Today is Thursday, so it's time for our weekly visit of Dr. Peter Hammond, so let's bring him up right now. Peter, are you with us? Yes, I am. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. And folks, we've got an extremely special show for you today entitled The Real Story of Slavery and War Crimes. And what makes it so special is we are delighted to be joined by our very special guest, Michael Walsh. So let's bring him up right now. Mike, are you with us? I am something of an African veteran too, so I'm not quite getting used to the terrible weather that we're suffering on the Spanish Riviera today, and uh, I think perhaps I should have stayed in Latvia. <laughs> there you are, yes. I'm here and I'm firing on all cylinders as usual. Thank you very much, uh, Andrew, for inviting me, and it's wonderful company that I have with Dr. Peter Hammond. Lovely to meet you, my friend. Excellent. Thank Thank you. you so much, Michael. We're delighted to have you on. Now, before we start today's show, I want to say this. Both Peter and Mike have been on this show over 100 times each, and I would like to thank them for their support, not only of this show, but also as trusted friends that I've been able to discuss personal matters with in confidence. Without Mike and Peter... I doubt this show would have been as successful as it has, so I encourage you to read Mike's free downloadable books at the click here for Mike's free to read downloadable books, and please support his work link in the show post. And if you enjoy them, to please financially support his work by initially emailing him at euroman underscore uk at yahoo.co.uk. That's euroman underscore uk at yahoo.co.uk and he will be in contact with you personally. Also, please support Peter's Frontline Fellowship Ministry. Peter has many products available that you can find in the links to the many websites Peter oversees, which will also be listed in the post for this show. Okay, so that being said, the title of today's show is The Real Story of Slavery and War Crimes. The show image is of a 1970s era Joe Biden meeting with terrorists in Rhodesia. Peter is going to lead the show in conversation with Mike. So Peter, over to you. Thank you so very much. I appreciate that, Andrew. And it's great to have Mike, who is one of my favourite authors, and I greatly appreciate his radio programmes and his publications, and for having the courage 
and integrity to speak up for truth and those of us who feel abandoned, uh, such as in Rhodesia, uh, so grateful for those who have spoken up in the home country. My father fought all six years in the Second World War in the Eighth Army as a bombardier and uh, running a 25-pounder in North Africa and Italy. And I always wondered why it was after Rhodesians had done so much to fight for Britain and the Commonwealth that we were betrayed and stabbed in the back um, by our very kith and kin, whom we had fought for on multiple occasions, First World War, Second World War, Korean War, Malayan conflict. But aside from that, today we're talking about slavery and war crimes. I, I was intrigued by the uh, garbage that we're getting in the media these days. But uh, on the occasion of Prince William uh, visiting Jamaica and the very public demonstrations and the high-level characters in Jamaica uh, handing over a open letter to the monarchy demanding reparations from the monarchy for slavery. And, uh, uh, of course, I, I just look at this and think, uh, what a lot of nonsense and hypocrisy. Uh, they even in the letter call for atonement. Atonement. Now, atonement can only be made uh, in my understanding of biblical law by blood. And our Lord Jesus Christ has paid the only atonement that can be paid for such sins. And as Christians, and most Jamaicans claim to be Christians, how can they ask for a human atonement other than that which was already provided by our Lord Jesus Christ nearly 2,000 years ago? But quite aside from that, why are Jamaicans calling on people such as Prince William to make reparations for slavery, which Britain led the cause in fighting against uh, more than 200 years ago. More than 200 years ago, in uh, 1807, in fact, uh, Great Britain abolished the slave trade, and the Royal Navy devoted most of its energies in the 19th century to clearing these oceans and the sea waves of the slave traders. And when you think how Britain already paid millions of pounds back 200 years ago money uh, to end the slave trade and then poured so much blood and treasure into fighting the slave trade. This is unique. In all of human history, try and find a Muslim uh, anti-slave crusader. Try and find the equivalent of William Wilberforce, for example, or David Livingston uh, amongst any of the other uh, cultures and religions of the world. So uh, it seems extraordinary to be demanding of Britain as some a generation that is so many generations removed from those who did partake in the disgraceful slave trade. But why call on the very people who did more than any other people in history to fight the slave trade and to set the captives free, including in Jamaica over 200 years ago, what on earth is going on here, but also ignores the ongoing slave trade today and it, it ignores the history of slavery, which every nation was involved in. So, uh, Mike, I'd be interested in your response to these um, audacious uh, uh, and self-serving uh, demands for reparations from Britain today for the slave trade that ended over 200 years ago. Absolutely. Audacious and hypocrisy uh, are the two words that come to my mind, because remember that none of the slave traders, and of course Britain was certainly not on its own here, the United States, Portugal, Spain, France, uh, Belgium, they were all involved in the slave trade, but when I say that they were involved, there was 
in some respects, they were only the carriers because the people from these ships, they did not go into land, uh, into the African nations along the west coast of Africa, with which I am very, very familiar with. I've seen the port, the, the castles and the fortresses and all the rest of it from where they were shipped out. But um, the sailors themselves, there was no troops on these ships. They themselves did not go into the hinterland to collect these slaves. They <clears throat> simply collected them when they were delivered by their African owners, the slave traders, the African slave traders, who brought them to the, um, the coastline, and they were trading the slaves for all kinds of goods. And as a matter of fact, I mentioned it a bit earlier to uh, yourself, is um, if you can pick up a copy of The Floating Brothel by Sean of Rees, um, a wonderful uh, book about the 18th century shipping of female slaves to uh, Australia. And on the way, of course, they had to, there was no Suez Canal back then, uh, they had to go down the West African coastlines and they were trading white slaves for African slaves with the tribal leaders of the particular tribe, of the various tribes, down what was then the Gold Coast. Nigeria, all of these, overland, a whole lot, um, and you know, this was this was just trafficking in human flesh, and the colour or the culture or the background or the nationality just simply didn't come into it. Um, the Irish were, of course, the first slaves, but nobody mentions those. But if we're going to talk about slavery, Peter, you know, we could talk not just for the power that were given here with appreciation. We could talk for days and weeks. We could just concentrate, focus on the slaves that were used by the Soviet Union in the Gulag. And this is in our lifetime, for goodness sake. You know, the Gulag never ended until the 1980s. You know, well, I was a very mature man with um, children at the time. These were slaves that were not getting paid. All of the American prisons apparently are commercial enterprises in which all the prisoners uh, make products and these are sold at a profit. Are these not slaves? Um, if you do a checkup on Google, and it's all there, you need to say, the whites end of slavery at the blame for it, is today, Peter, it is estimated that 40.300,000 coloreds are slaves to non-Europeans. So who's doing anything about those? now? I live on the Spanish Riviera, which is very nice for me, but within three kilometers of me, I will take you to two or three watchtowers. Now, these are dotted all along the coast of European Mediterranean coastlines, not just in Spain, but in Portugal, even in England, right down Portugal, along Spain, right along France, you go down Italy, you go into Greece and all the rest of it. Wherever you go, there was a massive depopulation along Southern Europe due to the slave raiding by the Barbary pirates. And you mentioned the English uh, earlier on quite correctly in ending that particular type of African slavery. Um, but um, the Americans played a big, big part in cleaning up the Mediterranean too. And how many Americans, white Americans, died in clearing up, the, uh, getting rid of the North African pirate, um, uh, pirates, the Barbary pirates, who were 
their main stock in trade. And it's all here. We're surrounded by it. A few weeks ago, I was touring the Alhambra Palace in uh, Granada. These are built on slave empire. The whole thing was built by slaves. Nobody ever mentions these because they were European slaves. Good Lord, it just goes on and on and on. The Camp of the Saints by that wonderful French author. You know, it, it spills the beans of everything. But as I say, the Gulag, who is counting? Nobody really knows how many Europeans, there were no Africans or Arabs there or anything like that. They were vacuumed up all, from all over Europe. And the tragedy is, is that the network of rolling stock, rail rolling stock, that transported millions of people from Western Europe, from Germany, Germany alone, five million slaves were shipped out to the Soviet Union. But of course, we've got the Baltic states and they all have the horrifying figures and the sad thing about it. The, it, it breaks my heart is that the rolling stock that was used to transport these ordinary civilians to the Gulag were either uh, stolen from the German, the Reich, or that they were shipped in the, the train, the rolling stock, and all the rest of it, all the necessary traveling uh, transport infrastructure that was necessary for the transport of slaves from Western Europe into the Soviet Golan were supplied by um, American industry. Now, this is pretty heartbreaking, and of course, I've witnessed this. Wherever you go, I go to <coughs> Latvia. I've got a lot of friends in Latvia, the Baltic states. There are monuments to the missing all the time. And a very good friend of mine, Diana, she's, uh, she's in her 70s now, but she took me out to a small village school. Now, bear in mind that Latvia is known, Peter, as the um, the Canada of Europe. It's a beautiful little country, 40% of it, forests, thousands of lakes and rivers. It's a wonderful place. And she took me out to her little village school, which hasn't changed a great deal over the last century. And she told me that she was an eight-year-old pigtailed girl in that classroom when Red Army soldiers came in and they read uh, the names out of those that they wanted. Diana was one of them. Uh, Diana Theresa was one of them. She was pulled out, not knowing what on earth is happening. For goodness sake, she's an eight-year-old school child, little blonde, not that that matters a great deal in this respect. And uh, she was singled out because her parents, like many, many other parents, had been taken out for some reason and they were being put on a transport. And over the next week or so, she and her family and tens of thousands of other Latvians and Estonians and Lithuanians and Poles were shipped out to the slave, out, out to the Gulag. Not all of them made it back. She was out there with the family for about eight years. Nobody got, nobody got paid. No, are these not slaves? No, they're the forgotten slaves. And it is down to us, Peter, to make sure that these people live on. Now, let's face it, there is a massive publicity campaign on behalf of the black. We need to do exactly the same for the, the white slaves of history. Sorry to... Uh, I carry on so much, but it, I'm very impassioned about this, uh, being a worldwide traveler as you are, my friend. Yes, I'm horrified by the ignorance of so many people as to real history. And, and if we don't know our history, I mean, my people are destroyed from lack of knowledge, we read in Hosea. We see people are ripe for gaslighting, guilt manipulation, and frankly, 
financial extortion. Uh, it's just unbelievable. I don't think there's a continent in history that's done more for other continents than Europe. Europe has lifted up, for example, Africa from the Stone Age into the Space Age. What Africa was when the Europeans first came to Africa was absolutely abysmal. And uh, uh, Henry Morton Stanley's uh, through the Heart of Africa and the Heart of Darkness really depicts this, and Through the Dark Continent, and David Livingston's books, uh, Missionary Travels and the Zimbesia Expedition. It documents what Africa was like before missionaries and Westerners came and stopped the slave trades. Every single tribe in Africa practiced slavery. Every tribe in Africa was practicing cannibalism. There was horrific human sacrifices, tortures, unbelievable abuse of their own people and, of course, neighboring tribes. And as you so correctly pointed out, it wasn't that Europeans were capturing black slaves. It was African tribesmen were selling their own people or maybe some unfortunates had captured from neighboring tribe to coastal slave traders who were in many cases Arabs, uh, who then sold them to the Portuguese and the Spanish and uh, the Dutch and others who would take shipping them across the Atlantic. But there's a basic ignorance over the larger slave trade because uh, it's so much I, I wrote a book on this, slavery, terrorism, Islam, because most people don't understand that the vast majority of slavery historically has been actually carried out by the Muslim world. And um, everyone seems to know about the transatlantic slave trade of the uh, slaves who were shipped, possibly as many as 11 million Africans were transported across the Atlantic. But few people know that 95% of the African slaves who were shipped across the Atlantic went to South and Central America, mainly to Portuguese, Spanish, French possessions. Less than 5%, actually 4.4% of the slaves who crossed the Atlantic from Africa went to the United States or Canada, went to North America. Less than 5%, 4.4%. And so uh, interesting that there's not much emphasis on those slaves who went to the Portuguese and Spanish and French possessions, but there's a the big emphasis about, about those who went to the Anglo-Saxons. That's intriguing. But while you look at the 11 million Africans who went to North and South and Central America, but what about the more than 28 million Africans who were enslaved by the Muslims in, in uh, Africa across the Sahara and up the east coast of Africa, the Indian Ocean slave trade and uh, through the Red Sea? And um, in my studies, I was staggered to find that in addition to the 28 million Africans enslaved by the Muslims over the last 14 centuries, more than 80% of those captured were calculated to have died before reaching the slave markets. And so the death toll from 14 centuries of Muslim slave raids into Africa is easily over 112 million. And if you add that to the number sold in the slave markets, another 28 million, the total number of African victims of the trans-Sahara and the East African slave trade is significantly higher than 140 million. That's more than 140 million Africans either died in transit or were killed during the slave raids uh, or were sold on the slave markets in North Africa and the Middle East. And who speaks about those uh, slaves? And there's another difference. The slaves being transported across the Atlantic was calculated to have a mortality rate of as high as 10%. So up to 10% of the shipment going across the Atlantic died in transit, diseases and so on. And yet the slaves dying in transit across the trans-Sahara East African slave trade was between 80 and 90%. So it's, it's reversed. And while almost all the slaves shipped across the Atlantic to North or South or Central America were for agricultural work, 
Most of the slaves destined for the Muslim Middle East were for sexual exploitation as concubines and in harems and for military service. And while many children were born to slaves in the Americas, and millions of their descendants now live in Brazil, Jamaica, Haiti, even the USA to this day, very few descendants of the slaves that end up in the Middle East have survived. And the reason is, while slaves who went to the Americas could marry and have families, most of the male slaves who went to the Middle East slave bazaars were castrated. And by the way, the, the castrations were done by Jewish merchants who were employed by the Muslims because they were considered obviously capable of doing everything from uh, circumcisions on. So uh, Jewish merchants did the castrations of the eunuchs. Most of the children born to the woman were killed at birth, either by drowning or having their throat slit, to maintain Arab numerical superiority. It was believed that having children would be a distraction for the slaves in the Muslim Middle East, and they didn't want to have Africans growing up to to uh, possibly be a threat to them later. And so they had a policy in the Muslim Middle East to make sure that the males were either eunuchs or the females, uh, their babies were killed at birth so that they didn't have the problem of unproductive slaves. It was cheaper to just get new slaves than to have some growing up. So the contrasts between the transatlantic slave trade and the North African and East African slave trade couldn't be greater. And when, when you consider uh, the tremendous work done by British reformers such as William Wilberforce and David Livingston and uh, Dr. Kirk and many others who did spectacular, Henry Morton Stanley, what they did to set free the slaves. And then you start to say, but wait a minute, while the European slave trade and North African, North American slave trade ended 200 years ago, when did the slave trade end in uh, North Africa and the Middle East? Well, in fact, in some cases, never. But uh, do you know that uh, Malcolm X, the famous convert to Islam, noted during his pilgrimage to Mecca in 1968, he saw black slaves being sold in Mecca in 1968. And that's intriguing because uh, the um, uh, Saudi Arabians only ended the slave trade uh, a few years before that. I think 1962 as a direct result of um, pressure from America. And yet they were still practicing it several years after it was uh, abolished. And then there's the slave trade in Mauritania, for example, well documented. So I don't know how many people recall the um, uh, very public visit of uh, Barack Hussein Obama to Africa in 2013. But in 2013, the most expensive presidential visit ever, $100 million worth, uh, he visited Gori Island across the bay from Dakar. Uh, and uh, he was, which is the capital city of Senegal, and he is photographed at the slave fort's famous door of no return. And Obama quoted, this is a testament to when we are not vigilant in defense of human rights, what can happen? And so he drew attention to the slave trade that was outlawed more than 200 years before, but he was silent on a much larger ongoing Arab slave trade that still plagues Africa today. And he was standing within sight of slaves uh, in, uh, in Africa and Mauritania. And so literally from the doorway he was standing, Mauritania bordering Senegal has half a million slaves amongst a population of just 3 million. And there are books on this. Uh, Samuel Cotton, African-American author, wrote Silent Terror, a Journey into Contemporary African Slave Trade. Speaks about 
the huge amounts of slaves, including Mauritanian Arabs and Berbers, who bring the black slaves to work with them in Dakar within sight of Gori Island. But Obama, as President of America, said not a word about this ongoing scandal. And the intriguing thing is he then goes to Tanzania. Now, Tanzania has got as part of it Zanzibar. And Zanzibar was a vastly bigger slave terminus than Gori Island. But Gori Island shipped slaves to the Americas. Tanzania, Zanzibar Island, they shipped slaves throughout the Muslim Middle East. So Obama didn't make a visit to Zanzibar because that would have been embarrassing. Because Stonetown on Zanzibar has a massive cathedral, a Christ church, built over the site where the slave market used to be. And the pulpit is directly where the slave auction block used to be. And there is wood, the cross over the altar is made from wood from the tree under which David Livingston's heart was buried when he died in, in what today is Zambia in Central Africa. And they've got a cross from that tree uh, in memory of David Livingston over, over it because it was the work of David Livingston's writings and of Henry Morton Stanley that goaded the British government to finally shut down the slave market in Zanzibar. And this church that's built over it, and they've also got a wonderful monument, a striking monument, constructed above the 15 underground cells where African slaves in transit were incarcerated until sale to the Arab masters. And there's five stone figures in a pit representing captured slaves who appear to be rising out of the earth. And they've got shackles around their necks and chains between them. This testifies of their plight. They look tired and sad, but they look strong. And so Africans asked at the time, 2013, why did Barack Obama, an African-American, who continues to be so supportive of radical Muslim regimes, who still engage with slavery today, why did he say nothing about the largest, longest slave trade in history? And why didn't he visit Zanzibar Island? And, well, we know the answer to all these things, don't we? Um, these inconvenient facts don't merit uh, the attention of an American president or of the modern media, because they silent. They sound about the slaves in the gulags, as you said. They sound about the slaves in the millions of German prisoners of wars and civilians at the end of the Second World War who made slaves, not just to the Russians, but even to the French, uh, or the other losses of the more than a million German soldiers who died as prisoners of war under American prisoner of war camps because they were just literally starved to death and deprived of water and everything else under Eisenhower. They ignore the millions of people, most of them Christians, who are slaves in Red China today. And so isn't it intriguing that Disney World and McDonald's and so on, almost all the toys are made in Red China, probably many of them by slave labor. And yet who's speaking about the need to boycott China for its slave labor, which undercuts everyone else's work uh, today? I mean, who can, who can compete with prices from a slave country like Red China, where they're literally using slave labor from concentration <clears throat> camps who don't get paid? So, yes, I think when people want to talk about reparations from slavery, maybe they should be addressing this to the present slave masters and slave traffickers and human traffickers, which we haven't even spoken about, the sex slave traffickers, which is colossal. According to the uh, international slave uh, anti-slavery movement today, there's more than 40 million people in slavery today, of which 24 million on forced labor. And... 4.8 million are estimated to be in sexual exploitation, pornography industry uh, and brothels, and another 4 million persons in forced labor imposed by state authorities, most that in Red China. 
And we're not mm. even talking about 15 million women who are on forced marriages in the kind of countries <clears throat> like India and so on, where uh, you're not meant to question their their uh, morality because, you know, the only bad people in the world are white people and Christians and all the other races and religions get a free pass. Um, wouldn't you say, Mike? Absolutely. And I think that we um, should mention also that the United States and Israel are the biggest producers of uh, pornography, including paedophilia um, in the world today. And uh, Israel is basically one big untouchable brothel. And into Israel are vacuumed up um, uh, naive young women from all over Eastern Europe and uh, from Russia. They're European and so they're so prized, they're highly prized. And uh, these are being used in the brothels. And of course, um, as was pointed out in the 1930s, they're not interested in a nation of their own. They will never have a nation of their own. There are nations of everywhere. Is, but they just wanted um, uh, a land which was an untouchable so that they could carry out the criminal activities around the world without their being touched. But Israel is a huge um, um, provider of um, pornography and uh, it would be, I don't go into that sort of thing, it would be too distressing for me, but um, those who have been caught up in this vile trade are um, probably, almost certainly, far better, or far worse off than were the African slaves that we were talking about who had a value. And um, I am not so far from being an expert on the um, plantations of the United States in the 18th century and the 17th century. But from what I have heard and seen, <clears throat> Although nobody likes being a slave, and I don't like being a slave, throughout my life, 50% of my earnings have gone straight to the government, which I don't approve of. So for 50% of the year, I too am a slave. But um, I suppose in comparison with many others, I'm a well-looked-after slave. But so were the Africans. And if it was a toss-up between going to the Soviet gulag in the 1950s or earlier, or going to um, a plantation in North Carolina, give me the plantation in North Carolina anytime, better weather, and the survival rate was almost certainly better than the survival rate that was um, experienced in the Soviet gulag, 40%. <clears throat> 100 people were traded, tra taken there, only 60% of them somehow survived, because the numbers didn't count, they couldn't care less. Um, they had uh, an unlimited supply of slaves coming in from uh, war-torn Europe. And so it really didn't matter at all. If they, I think I seem to recall reading that the survival rate in the Gulag was four months. So you were fortunate if you were to uh, live beyond that point. They couldn't care less. They didn't count them. They're unlike the Germans. The Germans, we know how exactly how many went into their internment camps. Well, that's what the British call them, internment camps. Um, they know exactly how many. They know their names, their addresses, their backgrounds, their nationalities, absolutely everything, their religions. The Germans were absolutely meticulous about those who were going in and out of their internment camps, the concentration camps, even the likes of Auschwitz. It's all on 
record, and Putin has kept the records, by the way. Um, it'd be interesting, as somebody pointed out, you know, if he was ever to release those, what a nuclear weapon that would make out to be. But nobody was keeping tabs or figures that are just shipped into the Gulag, into the Siberian and uh, Northern Russian and Western Europe, timber camps far up north in the midst of winter, their survival rate was very, very low indeed. And of course, they lived an animal-like existence, uh, hand-to-mouth and fighting between themselves and all the rest of it. It wasn't very well regulated at all. They had no interest whether they lived or died. There were plenty more. There'd be another train load coming in. Um, don't worry about it. But all of these Stalinist five-year plans, the huge dams, the rivers, the canals, and all the rest of it, they um, give Stalin the credit for, they don't, they were all built on slave labor. Um, my wife comes from Ukraine, just down the road is the Nikra Dam, which is one of the biggest dams, it was the biggest dam in the world at the time. That was built by uh, the United States, it was General Electric who provided the turbos in uh, Stalinist Russia, uh, Bolshevik Russia, it was Canada who provided the experts and all the rest of it. And of course, Eastern Europe, they provided the slaves, many of them who never saw their countries, their families, or their churches ever again. God bless them. Nobody ever remembers them. But people like you must keep the uh, memories of these uh, martyrs alive. And the number of people who died unnecessarily, couldn't put a percentage on it, I would say 99.9%. Um, of them were European Christians. 66.7 million lost their lives in the, the Soviet Union due to deprivation, murder, genocide, and all the rest of it. These are figures compiled by several experts, none of whom have got a hammer and sickle to grind. 66.7 million and they're whining about six million, which of course is very, very problematic. So there you go. We're living in a world of hypocrisy and the future historians, we have the Iron Age, the Copper Age, the Bronze Age and all the rest of it. How would you describe the age that we are enduring now is the age of hypocrisy? And I think that would be a pretty good contender, Peter. Thank you. Over to you, my friend. Thank you. Yes, indeed. I, I think it's extraordinary, the hypocrisy. We've got a lot of people today who feel so morally superior. You just think of those people who, who just outraged over uh, how could anybody have been a German 1930s and 1940s, and wh what are they living in? They're living in an age which legalizes abortion, which kills babies. Um, how many tens of millions of babies have been killed in America and in Great Britain, for that matter, legally uh, through abortion? And then they complain about the generations that had slavery. And then you think, but wait a minute, are they not buying products and toys made in red China by slave labor? How come they don't see that inconsistency? You have this outrage right now about uh, Vladimir Putin's war and his atrocities, and he's a war criminal, and he should be taken out, and this and the other, and so on and so forth, and they should assassinate him. And th these things are highly incendiary comments made by senators and people in government, and extraordinary. And yet, wait a minute, when they talk about war crimes, what would you say about Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Winston Churchill 
with saturation bombings of cities. I mean, just think in the Second World War, uh, the United States Army Air Force and the Royal Air Force collectively killed at least 2 million German civilians with the bombing of 63 cities in Germany, flattening Hamburg, Cologne, Dresden, Berlin, uh, even small towns, Kassel and places that you think, well, what, what significance is this militarily? Terror bombing of civilians where they were incinerating people in multiple raids, like uh, the raid on Hamburg over 10 days and 10 nights, the Royal Air Force by night, the American Army Air Corps by day, and they would come in with a thousand bomber raids flattening civilian centers until not even the fire brigade could operate. There was no water pumps working. They destroyed the plumbing. Uh, the fire brigade couldn't operate at all. The whole place is an incendio. Firebombing of Tokyo. Fi uh, we're not even talking about nuclear bombing of Hiroshima and, and uh, Nagasaki, which happened to be the two main Christian centers in, uh, in Japan. In fact, there were more Christians in Nagasaki and in Hiroshima than any other place in, in all of, of uh, Japan. Intriguing, they chose those spots to test nuclear weapons. But we don't even have to go back 80 years. We just need to look at uh, NATO's war against Serbia, which basically, why did NATO go into Serbia when it's meant to be a defensive operation? And they bombed Serbia. Now, we're talking about 17,000 air sorties. That's bombing raids by by air, 17,000 aerial bombardments carried out against Serbia in 1999 in the name of NATO. And for what purpose? Basically helping some Muslim terrorists affiliated with Al-Qaeda in Bosnia in the war against the Christian Orthodox Christian Serbs. And then, you know, we're not even talking about the 12,000 bombing raids under NATO of uh, Libya, which created a human tidal wave of millions of refugees and displaced people who've moved into Europe, threatening a demographic time bomb for the future. Then one could talk about the bombing and destruction of Iraq, hundreds of thousands of civilians killed in the bombing of Iraq. Now, when you look at the microscope being placed over what's going on in a special military operation in Ukraine, now, if you applied similar kind of analysis to when America went into Iraq, and honestly, the Russian army would come out looking like the Red Cross in comparison with how the Americans uh, used real weapons of destruction on Iraq in the name of trying to get rid of weapons of mass destruction that they never found. So the hypocrisy is huge. And where was the world outrage against the violation of the territorial sovereignty and integrity of whether we're talking about Serbia, Libya, Syria, Afghanistan, or Iraq? But Iraq was a stable country where the Christians had tremendous freedoms of religion under Saddam Hussein, whatever one thinks about him. He did give a lot of freedom and tolerance to the Christians. And yet when Americans went in, they wiped out so many hundreds of thousands of people and destroyed a great stable country in the Middle East, couldn't find the weapons of mass destruction. And where was this boycott America, don't buy American goods, uh, they're not allowed to take part in the Olympics? Was there ever any equivalence if the same standards was applied to America and NATO as being applied to Russia at the moment, we would have a very intriguing situation, wouldn't we? Mike, what do you think of our media propaganda and talk about war crimes these days? Yes, I think Solzhenitsyn and uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn summed it up, so many people do in a few words, is 
Control of the media is in the hands of the perpetrators, and it says it all. You know, on whatever the topic that we're talking about, whether it's the Gulag or Serbia or Libya, control of the media is in the hands of the perpetrators. And uh, that answers that question. And of course, another one is uh, Friedrich Nietzsche. Is, uh, people don't want to hear the truth because they don't want their illusions destroyed. And doesn't that say it all, Peter? Yes, illusions. Well, like the illusions of the New World Order, I've, I've been hearing about this New World Order for ages. And of course, we know that we in Rhodesia in the 60s and 70s were considered a threat to world peace. How about that? Our little country, we had 40 helicopters in total. Uh, our biggest airborne operation was 198 men deployed. There wasn't one airborne soldier in reserve. I mean, Rhodesia, with a minuscule defense force, we were considered a threat to world peace. They actually declared that. And we had to put full sanctions. We were boycotted. They did not allow us to have, uh, we couldn't take part in uh, Olympics, not even the paraplegics Olympics. And we had a lot of paraplegics because of the terrorist landmines and so on. And yet you think of the boycotts on Rhodesia. I can say as someone who's been on the receiving end of international boycotts, uh, both in Rhodesia and in South Africa, uh, that uh, sanctions don't work and boycotts actually don't work. They create some suffering, but all they do is make the people of the targeted country, the sanctioned country, come together in greater unity. And so at this moment where there's such petty boycotts of Russia to the extent of even excluding their sportsmen from international events, and I don't think there should ever be politics or boycotts in sports ever for any reason. And uh, I don't know what this is meant to achieve. You are not allowed to play Tchaikovsky. Uh, people have been told during ice skating routines you can't use Russian music like Tchaikovsky. People with uh, Russian um, cats are not allowed to enter them into cat shows. The pettiness, this, this reminds me of the pettiness of anti-German hysteria that erupted during the First and Second World War. I mean, even in Cape Town, we had German shops, bakers, butchers, and others uh, being stoned and petrol bombed and burned out in 1914 and 1939, uh, even in Cape Town, South Africa. That's the kind of hysteria that was whipped up by the media and the governments against people who were of German ancestry, who had been there for generations. But now I see this kind of hostility uh, put onto the Russians and this kind of economic warfare and sanctions even cultural sanctions placed on the Russians. And uh, I can say somebody who's been receiving it, when I look back, not only was it petty and counterproductive, but in some ways it was a blessing because we were boycotted from, for example, scum like Hollywood with their filth and garbage. One of the worst things that happened to our country was the lifting of sanctions when suddenly all this filth from Hollywood came into our country, which we'd been protected from for decades. And the perverts, the drug Stealing, cocaine sniffing, pedophile, predator, rapist, and child abusers like the Harvey Weinsteins of this world and the Jeffrey Epsteins of this world. It was good for us to get cultural boycotts from Hollywood, actually. I think Russia will end up being the better for it if they are uh, sanctioned in this way and freed and spared from the cultural rot that comes out of Hollywood. So, uh, looking at all this and the hysteria, I think the best way for us to respond would be whatever Hollywood and the mainstream media and the politi politicos in the West are saying, take a 180 degree position and you'll probably be closer to truth. 
wouldn't you say, Michael? Absolutely. You know, I cover this subject um, very, very much, and um, it's dear to my heart, as much is. And uh, I've been reporting this, of course, uh, having the advantage of a Russian-speaking academic uh, wife, I'm able to find um, sources that are denied to other people. This gives me a tremendous advantage. And uh, the reality is, is that the sanctions against Russia have spectacularly backfired on the West. Russia is actually benefiting from it. And I forget, don't ask me to uh, quote the, the figures, but we're talking about a massive increase in income from fossil fuels because the sanctions have made the blue fuel and all the rest of it more expensive on the world market. This is the stock in trade of the Federation of Russia. And of course, instead of getting X amount for the exports that there is a terrific demand for, um, they're getting XX for it. So I would have thought that Putin and um, his colleagues are rubbing their hands with glee and say, come on, let's have more sanctions. They were cut out of SWIFT and then they produce their own alternative SWIFT. They will never go back to SWIFT. It was the same with Visa and MasterCard. They were not only making an absolute fortune from the Russian speakers who were using their card, but of course they were able to keep track. And this is very, very important. They were able to keep track of Russian expenditure um, uh, programs. The whole, that's gone. They've got their own card now. So they are actually making Russia more self-sufficient. They're, they're producing, I was just looking yesterday at a car. Um, it's, it's far superior to anything that is produced in, the, well, it used to be produced in the West because we can't run our cars now because we are um, lithium batteries and all the rest of it. The cars now are international, or whatever the badge says on the front, Peter. They're international in their components. And a lot of these parts are um, Russian origin. So entire car manufacturing plants are being closed down because of the sanctions. It's right the way across the board. And of course, the economic majority, okay, the West likes to say that Russia is isolated. Russia is not isolated. Russia is the greatest friends with Latin America, with South Africa, whether that's a good or a bad thing, and with India and China and all the rest of it, with the Far East, they're getting on fine. It is the West that has gone into self-isolation. And I don't know what the solution is, Peter. You know, I often scratch my head and I say, well, why are they doing this? You know, they're cutting their nose off to spite. They're saying they're punishing Russia and they're not punishing Russia. They're punishing our own peoples. Mm. And we're paying exorbitant prices for our food and our food. And we are the lucky ones because who knows, in two months, three months time now, people, I'm in Spain, People are uh, bulk buying now, and uh, the likes of vegetable oil is being rationed to five, uh, five bottles uh, per person, all the rest of it. So it's hitting us hard. But yeah. the Russian shells, um, inflation is uh, controllable, and uh, they're producing. And another thing, and this is very interesting, I just said a moment ago that. 
car making is an international program now. Your car is made up of parts that have come from every part of the world imaginable, including your Russia. Well, the same applies to the space programs. Now, we couldn't talk without satellites. We're talking now via satellites, Peter, um, that are up there in the sky. And it's big business. The entire thing, Facebook, absolutely everything, is totally dependent upon the network of satellites circling the Earth. Who puts them up there? Well, no correction. Who used to put those satellites up there with their rocket engines? It was Russia. And that, the color Roscomus. Now, that is all come to an end. So, they're stuck with junk which cannot be maintained and in some cases returned. They did bring a couple of astronauts back. Uh, should we call them cosmonauts now? <laughs> they did bring a couple of astronauts back, but that was just the goodwill of the Russians. Had they abandoned those cosmonauts <laughs> up in space, that they would have just had to get on with it. So I have never, ever in all of my life, never mind that, in anybody else's life, and we all learn from our forebears, I have never, ever heard of any nation, certainly continent, half a continent, half a continent is because what Europe is, um, self-committing um, committing suicide. But as Marine Le Pen says, the problem is, is people forget that Europe stretches from the Atlantic to the Urals, not from Washington to Brussels. Absolutely right. We must recapture all of this lost land. This is the crown of the world. The white race, uh, like the crown of thorns on Jesus' head, right around the head of the earth. Sorry, Peter, I do ramble on. <laughs> blame, blame, blame Andrew for the invite <laughs> <laughs> well, we have got at the moment in the media such a bombardment of propaganda and, of course, economic warfare. Yeah. And uh, when, But when people bring this up, we should use this as an opportunity and say, well, interesting you speak about war crimes and then bring up the war crimes that uh, we've tolerated. They've even made Hollywood films glamorizing the war crimes where they make glamorous films of bombers going over and sort of they never show you the, the results on the ground of what they're doing and you meant to care about these bombers flying over and dropping a uh, thousand bomber raids uh, flattening whole cities sendry bombs and yet there's so much where they glamorize you know sh sending off these cruise missiles into syria and well what do you think happens at the other end when they land and uh, why don't we see the results of the war crimes being done by our side and of course the slavery that we tolerate today and there's so many other things. So when people bring up these narratives, we should ask questions or introduce some facts. I mean, there's nothing like facts to ruin a good propaganda narrative. But I must say, as, as somebody who grew up under sanctions in Rhodesia and South Africa, it made us a stronger country, made us a better country. We started to produce more things for ourselves. It brought us together. Uh, it, the, the spirit of camaraderie, it still exists to this day. Um, I'm still... Are surrounded by many Rhodesians who we, even though Rhodesia was betrayed 42 years ago, the bond between us is absolutely unbreakable because of the intense experience that we went through. The world was against us. It was Rhodesia contra Mundum, but we were fighting against communism. We were holding the line against Soviet expansionism. We were fighting for Christian Western civilization. We knew what we were doing was right. 
And the sanctions didn't harm us. It actually strengthened us. It made us uh, much better off. And uh, South Africa did so well that in the end, um, people from all over the world were buying our weapons because South Africa was making some of the best weaponry in the world, all sorts of great things. As a result of sanctions, we couldn't buy the weapons from Britain and America or France. So we, we made them ourselves and we actually made better ones. And uh, when you look at what is being done to Russia right now, it's, as you say, cutting off their nose to spite their face. So we need to bring some facts back into this narrative, um, inject a bit of common sense into all of this, and refuse to go along with the uh, mindless narrative, which is uh, what a lot of nonsense drumming up hysteria around the world to lead the world into what could be a third world war and another and a nuclear exchange. Do we really want this? But we know that the enemy does because they want a great reset. And what do you need before great reset? You need a great collapse. And just as the globalists utilized the First and Second World War to launch the League of Nations, to launch the Soviet Union, to launch uh, the United Nations, bring about decolonization, bring about the enslavement of these countries that were recently decolonized into communist dictatorships. The, the great collapses that come from wars orchestrated by these banksters lead to great resets, which advance the globalist New World Order cause. And so we need to be alert to the fact of what they're doing and remind people uh, if you go along with this narrative, what is it going to result in? Far more taxes, far less freedom, far more oppression, far lower standard of living, and you're going to have very little control of your own life. And of course, the COVID-19 salvation by vaccination, lockdown lunacy, masquerade madness, that's just another one of the globalist attempt to create a crisis to bring about a great collapse out of which they can bring a great reset. And so if people can see this in the global uh, picture, because remember that when the Soviet Union was communist, then they were the ally of the West, and the West was sending all kinds of technology and helped them and covering for them. It's only when the Soviet Union collapsed and Russia became an Orthodox Christian country again, and Russia is now no longer an internationalist player, but a nationalist player, now they hate it. Isn't it intriguing? When Russia was a genuine threat to the whole world, and when the Soviet Union was a communist threat sponsoring terrorists all over the world, and when they had nuclear weapons aimed at us and uh, the possibility of a nuclear war as a result of the Soviet Union's communist globalist expansions, then they were our friends and allies. And you were a conspiracy theorist, neo-Nazi, radical, right-wing extremist, if you spoke out against Russia. But now, Russia isn't into the globalist agenda. And now that they're no longer communist, now they hate it. It does seem awfully hypocritical for the very same people who supported Russia in the days of communism are now the ones who hate it in the days that they are more pro-life, pro-family and Christian. What would you say, Mike? Yes, I have scores of uh, photographs of uh, Khrushchev and Brezhnev and uh, um, the American leaders, uh, you know, Nixon and President Kennedy and Johnson and all the rest of it, and Kissinger, of course, he's in all of them. Whatever the images are of Nixon embracing Brezhnev and Kennedy embracing uh, Nikita Khrushchev's wife, you know, the gulag we were talking about earlier on, there is always in the background Henry Kissinger, the guy who started off in New York 
in a factory that was producing shaving brushes for men. No qualifications whatsoever, another so-called survivor who ended up literally ruining the world and absolutely was 100% responsible for kicking the bucket under the, uh, under the seat of Rhodesia. It was his visit to South Africa that sealed the fate of Rhodesia because he told the South African president or prime minister at the time that unless you stop supplying Rhodesia, you are finished. Now, South Africa at the time was a country that was far greater, more powerful, more influential than, say, Canada is today. Vast Navy, you know, wonderful uh, part of the world, uh, very rich, very prosperous, and uh, all of the natural resources that Europe could possibly need. But he had the power, and he would have done it. He'd done it with other parts of the world. Kissinger is always there, Peter, in the background, with Nixon, with Kennedy, with Johnson, with all of the rest of them. Gerald Ford, remember him? These presidents came and go, but Kissinger was always there with Brezhnev, with Khrushchev, and they were out on hunting parties. They were out throwing the glasses around and having a wonderful time. Cold War, no. Phony War, yes. It was only protagonists. Keep the arms complex going with this pretend threat. There was never a threat from the Soviet Union. They were, as Hitler said, there were two sides of the same coin. Always were, always have been. But now, Russia, God bless Orthodox Russia, is um, on its own. And, well, not on its own, but certainly um, uh, independent. Thank you, Peter. Yes, we remember all that so well. Ian Smith documented it in his book, The Great Betrayal. And uh, Kissinger at the time promised the people of Rhodesia on TV, I saw it looking right into the camera, the United States of America guarantees the rule of law and your private property in, in Rhodesia. You will not have to fear. Uh, we will guarantee that your farms and your property rights will be inviolable. And if any Rhodesian wants to move anywhere in the world, you shouldn't have to. But if you do, we will pay for your relocation and set you up in an equivalent farm and lifestyle anywhere you want in the world. And, uh, and you know what happened, Zimbabwe. They betrayed Rhodesia. Rhodesia trusted the Americans enough to go for the one man, one vote, which resulted in Robert Mugabe, catastrophe, communism, the worst inflation in the history of the world, even worse than Yugoslavia, uh, even worse than the Weimar Republic, where a hundred trillion dollar note couldn't buy a half a loaf of bread and where all 5,600 white commercial farms were confiscated by the government, expropriation, not compensation, farmers murdered. And suddenly Zimbabwe needed to import food. Hundreds of millions of tons of food needs to be imported to Zimbabwe because they killed off, they did the decolocization of Rhodesia, exactly what was done to Ukraine by Stalin, and destroyed the agricultural self-sufficiency of a country that used to export food. All of this is thanks to Henry Kissinger and Jimmy Carter's foreign policy in 1970s. And, well, we could give many more examples of hypocrisy and slavery today and war crimes today, but... Uh, Andrew, I think we need to get back to you because we're probably running out of time. Yes, we're coming to the end of the show. Thank you so much, Peter. Mike, do you have any other uh, closing statement before I close out the show? 
No, I think we covered it very, very well. We covered a myriad of subjects and topics, and they're all absolutely fascinating, any one of which we could talk for a long time on. But um, thank you always to the listeners, because without you, the listeners, and the donors, the supporters, wherever in the world you are, then uh, it's all down to you. Without you, we are nothing. We are voices in a vacuum. So thank you for your listening. Thank you so much, Mike. Thank you so much, Peter. Okay, folks, and before we go, I want to again encourage you to read Mike's free downloadable books at the click here for Mike's free to read downloadable books and please support his work link in the show post. And if you enjoy them, to please financially support his work by initially emailing him at euroman underscore at yahoo.co.uk. That's euroman underscore UK at yahoo.co.uk. And he will be be in contact with you personally also please support peter's frontline fellowship ministry peter has many products available that you can find in the links to the many websites peter oversees which will also be listed in the post for this show and peter can you just give your email address out to the audience you can contact our mission at mission at frontline.org.za mission at frontline.org.za and our website www.frontlinemissionsa.org frontline mission sa sa short for south africa frontline mission sa.org we'd love to hear from you thank you so much andrew thank you mike thank you so much peter thank you so much mike what a piece of history folks the great dr peter hammond and the great michael walsh on one broadcast together I found it absolutely fascinating. I'm sure you did also. Thank you for listening. I'll be back with you tomorrow. Until then, folks, have a wonderful day. And bye for now.